primary care knowledge boost, generalised itching. Welcome back. As we said in the last episode, we've officially finished our fellowship year and uh, we are still continuing the podcast though because uh, excitingly it's been quite well received. Yeah, exactly. So Wigan are continuing to support um, the podcast um, and we are now also being supported by um, GP Excellence in Greater Manchester. Yeah, we're expanding. What this hopefully means is we'll be releasing episodes every two weeks from now on, um, still on a Monday. Yeah. And so what we'll do is on the same channel with Primary Care Knowledge Boost, we'll label episodes as whether we recorded them with somebody from Wigan or with Greater Manchester, depending on on the episode. And not much else will change, really. Yeah. Um, Today's episode is all about generalised itching and it's with GP with a specialist interest, Dr Rachel Hilton. She talks to us about the causes for generalised itching without a rash and how to approach this in terms of history, examination and investigations. Yeah, and we talk about strategies to help patients with generalised itch when they don't have an apparent cause. Today we have Dr Rachel Hilton with us to talk about itching all over. Um, Would you like to properly introduce yourself for the listeners? Certainly. Hello, I'm Rachel Hilton. I work as a GP with special interest in dermatology for Wrightington Wigan and Lee Trust. I work both in the secondary care dermatology unit at Lee Infirmary and also in the community service, which is based in Wigan. Although I have the title GPSI still, I no longer work as a GP, but I've got 23 years past experience in primary care as a GP partner and salaried GP. Okay. So so my my background is very much primary care. Yeah, brilliant. Um, So can you talk us through how you became a GP with a specialist interest Mm. in dermatology? Well, dermatology for me all started off when I'd been a partner in general practice for about five years and I was attracted to doing the Cardiff Diploma Mm -hmm. in Practical Dermatology. I didn't have any previous training in dermatology other than my two days as a medical student. (laughs) But I I recognised that there was a real need for dermatology in in general practice and just had a a gut feeling that this was something that I would enjoy doing and I was was right in that, I'm pleased to say. And about the same time, um, a session a week as a clinical assistant here at Lee Infirmary working with Libby Stewart came about. Libby's our local consultant dermatologist and... So my, my work in dermatology picked up from there. And then the GP with special interest post first appeared about eight years later in 2005. And so I took on that role at that time. So um, with this episode, we're going to talk about um, generalised itching. So people who come in and tell us that they're itchy all over. Mm. I thought it'd be good to start with um, defining what itch is. Well, itch is certainly a very common complaint. It's something we've all experienced. But um, when it's chronic and widespread, it can be debilitating and really very distressing to people. It is an, uh, an unpleasant sensation that leads to the urge to scratch. Okay. And interestingly, in evolutionary terms, it's a very useful reflex because if an insect is biting the skin we get rid of that insect by by scratching away at it but of course when the itch is all over the scratching can become quite destructive to the skin and equally distressing to the patient Mm. more scientifically what is actually going on in the skin when we feel itchy is that inflammatory mediators are being released in the skin yeah and this can be for a variety of reasons such as the presence of irritants on the skin It could be an IgE-mediated allergic reaction. It could be an infection. Or there can also be autoantibodies that are being produced within the body. And these inflammatory mediators can include histamine, serotonin, bradykinin, lymphokines. There are many, many of them. Mm. But ultimately, they all activate neurons that send the signal to the brain that the skin is feeling itchy. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Um, and we've got this term paritis that's um, used mm-hmm. a lot as well. Is that is that the same as itch? Are they synonymous? Very much so, yes. Paritis is simply Latin for the word itch. So simply okay. paritic is, is the translation of itchy. Okay, brilliant. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm. So if we take the topic as generalised itching rather than of specific parts, um, that because that's the main one that we're struggling with for us in, in primary okay. care anyway, can you talk us through the most common causes of generalised itching? Big, big topic. Yeah. <laughs> we, we could divide this up into specific skin conditions right. and systemic ill health that can manifest as a generalised pruritus. So the skin conditions include common ones such as eczema, skin infection, scabies, psoriasis, and urticaria, each of which is really a large topic in itself. Yeah. But there's also a condition called generalised pruritus, where the patient is complaining of itch all over, but when you look at the skin, there are no specific signs of a skin condition. Mm. All you can see are the excoriations, the evidence of scratching that has been going on. Yeah. So really, generalised pruritus is a diagnosis of exclusion, having excluded... The, the specific skin conditions that we've talked about. Yeah. So the most common cause of generalised pruritus um, is actually just dry skin, particularly in the elderly. Dry skin is itchy skin, yeah. but often overlooked by by clinicians who are maybe looking for something um, more complicated. Yeah, there has to be often. a diagnosis. Yes, yeah. yes. Dry skin often has physical causes, such as washing in products that are essentially detergents that are stripping the natural grease from the skin, Mm -hmm. indoor heating that's been turned up that dries out the skin, and reduced fluid intake, particularly in the elderly. But there are other very important systemic conditions that can manifest as generalised pruritus. And I suppose the most common of these is going to be iron deficiency. And this is iron deficiency whether resulting in anemia or not. Because, of course, you can be iron deficient for long before you actually start to drop your... Hemoglobin. Absolutely, yeah. Systemic diseases such as um, renal disease, uremia, hypothyroidism, liver disease, particularly those causing cholestasis, polycythemia and anemia, so too many or too few red blood cells, and hematological malignancies such as lymphoma and myeloma can present with pruritus. Mm. Yeah, so quite significant. Yeah, Yeah, many drugs can cause itching. I mean, as I'm sure you know, if you have a look in the BNF, you'll probably find (laughs) rash under every drug that is listed there, which doesn't help us really when we come to sort things out. But even such common drugs such as um, PPIs can in some patients cause them to become itchy. Mental health disorders can manifest with itch, particularly anxiety and depression. And Mm. there's a very specific psychological disorder known as delusional parasitophobia, Mm -hmm. where the individual has the conviction, the delusional belief that the skin is infested by insects or parasites. Yeah. And I think I couldn't stress enough, it really is worth remembering that you can have two or more causes of pruritus all existing together. That's probably far more common than there being one cell cause. For example, an elderly patient with dry skin who's also a little bit iron deficient and has an underactive thyroid. So having found one cause for the pruritus, you shouldn't stop looking for other ones at all. Yeah, that's good to know. Really important point. Mm. Um, and so obviously there's quite a lot there in the history that we're trying to differentiate between um, when you're kind of going through it yourself, what do you think is the most salient features to be asking in the history? Well, I guess I'm going to start considering specific skin conditions. So I'm going to ask about whether there is a history of atopy or not, mm-hmm. not necessarily eczema itself, but obviously asthma or hay fever, mm-hmm. or equally a family history of atopy can start to point you in that direction. 
I might want to know whether there is a contact history, whether any family members or partners have recently been or are itchy, because uh -huh. that might lead me to sort of question whether the patient has scabies. Yep. Mm. The patient's own description of a rash can be very helpful, because I'll often use words like hives or a nettle rash if it's urticarial. Yeah, mm. yeah. If they, if they do have a rash, the sight of that rash on the body can be a bit of a clue because certain areas of the body, such as the groin, the axillae or the feet, are particularly affected by fungal dermatophyte infections more often than other places. True. If the patient is describing blisters, the first thing I'll do is actually really check that they do mean what I mean by blisters. I check that they're meaning water-filled okay, lesions. Yeah. Because I found a lot of the time that the patients might describe the wheels that you get in urticaria as blisters. Ah, okay. But yeah. to me, blisters would suggest a condition such as pemphigoid or dermatitis petiformis. So really checking that we're all using the same language is very, very helpful in that situation. Mm -hmm. But if I'm getting negative answers to all of these, then we've got to really start to take a good systems history yeah a really comprehensive medical history like a top to toe kind Abs of business absolutely and of course a very comprehensive medication history including over-the-counter drugs not just that that's been prescribed yeah. yeah and you mentioned um ppis earlier are there any big hitters that are your common drugs that you would come across um ppis antibiotics i guess um there are some drugs such as thiazides or antipsychotics which can cause um skin upset they, they all they would tend though to cause a rash yep. very often but I've, i found that ppis as a group can cause a patient to become itchy interesting yeah. um and then so you've taken your good comprehensive history um what are you looking for an examination when you go um to check the body well the first point is as i'm sure you've all heard many a time before is please undress the patient examine all areas because you may look at one area of the body and not feel that the skin is particularly dry, but there may be very dry areas elsewhere, mm. for example. The other thing I would say is, in, in just in general terms regarding the examination, is to examine with your hands and not just your eyes. Mm. That The feel of skin can give you a clue. For example, dry skin may not look particularly unusual because it may not be inflamed, but once you actually feel the skin with your hands, you'll, you'll detect the sort of the texture of sandpaper. Um, so it's very easy to underestimate the dryness of skin unless you're feeling it as well. Okay. But we'll avoid it for people with scabies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pleased to say, touching touching wood here, I'm pleased to say that I've never actually um, caught scabies from a patient very because good. the evidence is that you actually have to be in very close contact with that patient for 20 minutes okay. for the scabies mice yeah. to literally walk from one person on, onto you. So whilst I know there have been incidences of, of doctors who have picked up scabies yeah. in their clinical work, thankfully I'm not one of them. Okay, oh, I'm glad I asked. That's quite rare, though. Yeah, yeah. So you don't need you don't need to be concerned, for example, about picking up the hand of a patient who you think may have scabies to mm. look for burrows because you're going to look on the hands particularly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, you really would be having to hold the hands of that patient for a good twenty minutes mm. to pick it up yourself. Nice. More specifically in the examination, if you see. Um, a patchy, dry, poorly defined rash, that could well be eczema, mm -hmm. particularly if you've already picked up on a past history of atopy for that patient. If you see a papula, little little bumps, a rash on the trunk, um, you're going to start to think about scabies, in which case you need to look for burrows on the palms, on the wrists and between the fingers. Mm -hmm. If you start to see bright silvery scale on well-demarcated red 
patches that that's going to suggest psoriasis to me. If you start to see an annular rash, particularly in the groin or the axilla, you're going to think about a fungal infection. Mm. If you've got the history of an intermittent rash, one that clears, then comes and then clears again, you're thinking about an urticarial rash. Yeah. So you're going to be looking for, for wheels on, on the skin, looking like a nettle rash. But in the absence of any specific signs such as those, mm. have a little look at the general condition of the skin. Does it look and feel dry? You'll probably tend to find that the excoriations are on the upper back, on the arms, on the limbs. It'll be on the, on the bits of them that they can reach yeah. most commonly. And then you may need to start to look for signs of general ill health. For example, anemia, the pallor of anemia, jaundice, yeah. the hyperpigmentation of hemochromatosis, for example. So it's, it's back to general medicine. Um, yeah, there's so much to think about. Um, the kidneys, um, looking for a big liver, thinking along the myeloma lines. Oh yeah, we had a nice talk from Dr. Chris Gregory, the consultant haematologist about myeloma in the immunoglobulin episode, um, which is worth checking out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that leads us nicely on to initial investigations. Um, I suppose that question's quite difficult because it could really be anything. Well, I think a good starting point in in with a patient with generalised pruritus, no signs of specific skin conditions, I would definitely recommend that you do a full blood count, yep. use an ease, mm. LFTs, TFTs, and serum iron and ferritin. Okay, yep. so I, I see a lot of the time mm. when all the bloods have been done other than the serum iron and ferritin, because I think there's the misunderstanding that a normal full blood count rules out iron deficiency. And of course, as, as we know, it, it does not. Yeah. And I suppose if we're suspecting anything specific from our history and examination, we can do targeted tests um, such as that for myeloma um, with electrophoresis and free light chains. Yeah, which again, um, all the listeners can find out more about in our immunoglobulins episode with Dr. Gregory that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, so we've um, we've done the history and examination. Um, we'll have hopefully picked up on any systemic worrying features and referred them appropriately. But if nothing's come up, um, it's not clear cut, um, we've got nothing specific that's happening, where would you go next? If all the investigations are negative and I'd ruled out a specific skin disorder, mental health appears t- to be normal, then dry skin is invariably the cause of the patient's um, discomfort and itch so i'd start with an emollient regime and see how successful that was right yeah Yeah. okay brilliant so picking up on that um, generally for an emollient regime for an emollient regime i would want to prescribe both a soap substitute and also a leave-on moisturizer Mm -hmm. now there's a lot of talk about soap substitutes at the moment there is because there was a study last year called the bathe study which showed that the pour-in emollients, so the, the bottles of liquid that you would add to a bath full of water, yeah. showed that these actually are not beneficial at all. But it is still very much the case that emollients that you put on the skin and then wash off mm-hmm. are very much beneficial because anything, anything used for washing the skin that lathers, so this is every soap, every shower gel, every bubble bath, is essentially a detergent okay. in its chemical nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And detergents remove grease from the skin, so they will tend to have a drying action on the skin. Right. Okay. And so using using a light lotion, the type of emollient that is a light lotion, is very, very beneficial because it washes the skin effectively. So removing things from the skin that can cause it, such as dust and dirt, but it's doing so without a detergent action. So it's not going to make the dryness any worse at all. Okay, yeah. So, it's, so the study was the pouring... Um, ones were not beneficial so yes so anything else that's a soap substitute um is useful to use yeah the 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 poor in emollients are no longer recommended 
and I mean not just not no longer recommended but actually I know the advice is from NHS England and Greater Manchester Medicines Management Group that you should not be prescribing these in primary care yeah but the put on wash off emollients are not part of that recommendation and they are still very definitely beneficial um so should still be used Lovely. Um, so then, so you've got the soap substitutes. And um, what then is part of a normal emollient regime that you'd recommend to somebody with dry skin? The best emollients to use as a moisturiser are those that are the greasiest. Yeah. Although, admittedly, many patients will not like the very greasy products. And let's face it, none of us would like to cover our skin with something that we didn't like the feel of. So no. a bit of compromise is often needed. But generally, the thicker creams, the heavier creams, work much better as moisturisers than the very light lotions. Some of, the, some of the creams can be used very successfully, though, as the put-on, wash-off soap substitutes. So you can simplify the prescribing by prescribing the same emollient for washing with and for moisturising with, yeah. which, if the patient's paying a prescription charge, saves them a bit of money along the way. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's really good advice. And generally, do you have any strategies that are good to tell patients to try um, by themselves? So just general management for a generalised itch that doesn't have a rash certainly i mean before we leave the subject of emollients i would mention that for the elderly Mm. the the emollients that contain five percent urea such as products like balneum plus and Mm. e45 itch relief cream that low level of urea in these products often seems to benefit the elderly patients right okay now in terms of applying the emollient it really it's it's much more gentle to the skin to apply the emollient in downward strokes rather than the usual round and round action okay. that people naturally do, particularly on the limbs. So that's one thing that we can tell them. Yeah. As I mentioned a minute ago, prescribing the greasiest emollient that they will tolerate mm. will tend to work better. If you're doing so, warn them about the risk of slipping, particularly with the older patients, and oh, be particularly yeah. careful mm. of the two emollients that come as a spray. That's okay. Dermamist and Emmelin because it's very, very easy to get the spray on the floor and then you've got a real risk of slipping, yeah. a real hazard there. Um, encourage the patient to drink more water, particularly the elderly, because they're very often relatively dehydrated. Yeah. And in the winter months, the air inside our homes becomes much drier as we all put on the heating. And so putting some water by a radiator can do a little bit to, to counteract that. And you mentioned just about risks there. I know that there was um, some stuff going around recently about the fire risk with the greasier emollients. This is very true, that it's the liquid paraffin content in many of these emollients. So so there is a real risk that any clothing or layer that is applied over these liquid paraffin-containing emollients starts to sort of become soaked in the liquid paraffin and can be very easily set on fire if the patient smokes. Yeah. Mm. So that's always very sensible caution to give. Make sure you tell people very much I'll agree with that, yes. Mm. Yeah. What about if somebody struggles with in terms of elderly moisturizing, if somebody's struggling with their mobility or reaching spots, do you have any advice there? Sometimes I do home visits and somebody's got very dry skin, but you think they live on their own and things. Have you ever come across that? Often. It's very, very difficult if somebody lives by themselves. Sometimes they can manage to enlist a relative or a neighbor to come and apply products, in which case you, you need to make sure that the emollient that you've prescribed is actually acceptable to the carer yeah. not just the patient it's being put on true this is one situation actually where the spray emollients can be very very useful yeah that mm. it is a way sometimes for patients to apply an emollient to their own back yeah but yeah do um counsel them about the risk of slipping they need to put a towel on the floor right and really make 
care that they're not spraying their emollient when they're standing on anything, any flooring that's smooth and shiny. Brilliant. That's really good advice. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, and in terms of if we're thinking about um, a generalized itch with no rash, nothing to see, is there any role for topical or oral steroids at all? No, there isn't really. And unless you've diagnosed an inflammatory skin condition, specifically such as eczema, psoriasis, pemphigoid, then there is no place for steroids, either topically or oral. Lovely. So we stick to the emollients and the the strategies that patients can use to manage dry skin. Lovely. And um, just a question here. What about the use of sedating antihistamines? What do you think about that? Well, antihistamines will not be helpful unless the cause of the itching is urticaria. In other words, unless the itching is mediated by histamine release. Right, yeah. Because remember, there are many inflammatory mediators other than histamine, but antihistamines will only work when histamine is is involved. Mm. So the rationale for sedating antihistamines is purely the benefit of their sedative effect if sleep is disturbed by the itching. And I'm very cautious, particularly in elderly patients, because you could increase the risk of falls, because many of these products have a relatively long half-life, and so they can be left with morning sedation. Another product that you may want to think of if, you, if you're contemplating sedating antihistamines is low-dose amitriptyline. Okay, mm. yeah, Starting yeah. really very low and just titrating upwards until you get better symptom control and better sleep. Okay, yeah. Brilliant, yeah. yeah. And which people would you like to see referred to dermatology, would you say? I think if you fail to identify a cause for the patient's itch mm-hmm. and... If an emollient regime has not helped the patient sufficiently with their symptoms, then referral is definitely indicated. Yeah. And I would say please include a full medication history okay, so yeah. that we can consider that and either rule in or rule out medication as being a cause of their itch. And say someone is coming through to secondary care, they've been referred into yourself, um, and it is um, a simple generalised itch with no, um, no rash, no other cause. Um, do you do anything differently in secondary care? We don't really. We will start with a good emollient regime. We may go back and double check some of the blood tests just to make sure that nothing's been missed. But that always will be the first place that we will start. Okay, well, that's good to know. So we can be doing most of it ourselves in primary care. If you have identified a systemic cause, then you'll find that the itch does improve as the cause is addressed. So, for example, if you've identified iron deficiency, as iron stores gradually increase, the itch will gradually reduce. Yeah, okay. And actually, if we're thinking about the systemic causes, if we have identified someone as having a renal cause, a hematological cause, a liver cause, whilst they're waiting um, for for treatment for that, is there anything that we can do to try and help the itch or would we just manage it in the same way as a generalised itch without rash? Well, first and foremost, of course, a good emollient regime. There is some evidence, I believe, that UVB therapy can help some of the uremic patients, for example. So if your patient's quality of life is really being affected, do speak to us, do, you know, do consider a referral to dermatology as well. Lovely, because I don't think, I would think I would just think about sorting out the systemic cause, but you're right, of well, quality of life. that's clearly the top priority, but, but we may be able to help. Yeah, lovely, good to know. Um, and I guess uh, this could be one of the avenues for the use of advice and guidance. I know that some localities do have access to dermatology advice and guidance. Wigan doesn't as yet, as far as I'm aware, but I think it is coming. Um, but it could be a good way for someone to get in touch with their local dermatology department and ask these questions about patients that they're not too sure about before referring for an outpatient appointment. And do you have any good resources for patients in terms of managing the generalised itch? Yeah, the, the British Association of Dermatologists now has a specific website for patients offering lots of information Mm. and advice and support and it's called skin support and you can find it at skinsupport.org.uk 
On this site, there is an A to Z list of information leaflets, including one on pruritus, as well as all the individual skin conditions. You will also find on this website uh, general support regarding aspects of life, such as diet and exercise, and psychological support as well. I think that's a good one to recommend to your patients yeah. with yeah. any skin-related problem. Yeah. It's lovely that it's a patient-facing one. That's nice. Very much so. Yeah, yeah the, the original website for the British Association of Dermatologists is very good and you can you can access patient information on that but I think the skin support one is even better because it is very clearly aimed at and designed for the patients yeah lovely we'll, we'll put a link to that in the episode description as well so everyone can, can access it easily that'd yeah. be good yeah thank you very much I think that's about it for for generalized itch isn't it yeah and uh, we're looking forward to seeing you again soon to talk about urticaria and a little bit about angioedema okay then thank you Yes, that was really interesting. Um, what do you reckon your learning points are, Sarah, from that one? Yeah, I was thinking about this afterwards. And um, I think the mo- one of the most useful things was sort of thinking about a- how to approach generalised itching that mm. I've never really had a massive structure in my head. Yeah. So the whole thing that when she started, she talked about having systemic illnesses and then dermatological causes. Um, I thought that was really good. Uh, and then I liked as well, when I asked her the question about um, home uh, patients who are sort of at oh, home, yeah, the home visits, home visits, yeah, yeah, when you when you see people who have got really dry skin at home and no one can really help them, they live on their own. Um, the sprays might be quite useful for those people, but exactly, but with the yeah, the risk um, yeah. kind of counselling based yeah. on slippage and stuff that um, Rachel yeah. talked about. Yeah, what about you? Um, I think that um, I really took away that it can be caused by a lot of different things, <laughs> um, especially the systemic illnesses. Um, I always thought about um, liver and kidney and things, but yeah. um, there's so much. And we actually, um, I looked up the NICEKS afterwards oh, yeah, um, go on. about it and yeah. there's a massive list. So Give they say, the um, so it can be caused by your um, dermatological conditions, but systemically um, you've got renal disease and liver disease. Um, mm. Then there's the hematological stuff. So what Rachel talked about with iron deficiency, but polycythemia, mm. but also hemochromatosis yeah um and then there's endocrine so your thyroid disorders malignancies um so hodgkin's lymphoma t-cell lymphomas Mm. leukemias myeloma um and then neurologically apparently so multiple sclerosis is on the list as well so odd yeah Yeah. and never um you don't think about it um and then you've got your drug causes which we mentioned a little bit about in the episode the psychological causes and then things like pregnancy in the later stages as well yeah okay um so so many different things that we need to be considering yeah Um, oh i thought that was really useful actually when she mentioned about ppis causing itch yes i I hadn't really thought about that no i hadn't either so that's a nice one to think about in my um kind of sieve for it now um and what else there was one other thing oh no oh, i i find that the um stuff about the bathe study and the mm-hmm. soap substitutes interesting yeah um so just prescribe the emollient that they're using and um they can wash with it and then that's saving them money as well yeah keeping it nice and simple exactly yeah lovely um so as always you can get in touch with us in a lot of different ways you um, can. you can email us on primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com and mm-hmm. um, we're also on twitter and our handle is at pckb podcast mm-hmm um, and we've got our survey, yep. which we're always plugging, um, <laughs> but we'll put a link in the episode description to that. And it only takes about a minute and it just gives you a chance to get in touch with us and let us know what we can be doing better and any topics and things that you might want us to cover down the line. OK, so thanks very much. Till next time. And Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2019. 
guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.